Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful for the word that you have given to us. Um, It's easy to say we're grateful for it, but that gratefulness then, if it's really true gratefulness, would show itself in attentiveness. And not only attentiveness, but prayerfulness that you will teach us and also belief in it and obedience to it. So I pray that our gratefulness is genuine and that we actually do desire to listen and we do desire to believe and we do desire to obey. So I pray that now you enable us to do all of that, to listen, to believe and to obey. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to John in chapter 15. Gospel according to John chapter 15. I want to read verses 1 through 17. We won't get to all that this week, but next week we might be able to spill over. So John chapter 15, please. And verse 1. I am the true vine. Jesus speaking, obviously. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruits. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. And together... The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want, if God will help me, to take up this expression of Jesus where he says, I am the true vine. Remember, we've been working our way through these I am statements of Jesus. The reason for that, this is the last one, but the reason of these, the the reason, as I mentioned earlier, were personal to me, but also um, because um, these statements... Um, are identity statements of Jesus. That is to say, he's telling us, by way of these statements, who he, who he is. And that's crucial for all of us to know the identity of Jesus. Throughout history, people have grappled with this question, who is Jesus? And some have concluded that he's simply a moral teacher, a good teacher, a moral man, a good teacher, Uh, But yet, when we listen to what Jesus has to say, particularly about himself, we realize that it is these statements about himself, um, these identity statements, that make up the bulk, really, of his message, of his teaching. He teaches a great deal about himself. In fact, what gave him notoriety among the leaders of the world that is both seen and unseen, that is the religious leaders of his, of his day and even Satan himself, what caught their attention was primarily what he said about himself. That's what got the biggest reaction. Who is he? 
How can he make these kinds of statements about himself? I mean, he referred to himself, remember, as the son of man. And while that may sound rather gentle, they could hear from that what he was saying. Because in the Old Testament, especially in Daniel, in chapter 7, that expression, the son of man, was a reference to God, even the Messiah, but God himself. And so they picked up on what he was saying when he referred to himself as the son of man. But also, he referred to himself And others referred to him as the son of God. And again, they recognized in that what he was saying about himself. That God was his father in a way that was unique in any other way. He was calling himself the son of man. And he said, essentially, that if you believe in God, you believe in me. Thus, believing in him is believing in God. And if you honor him, you're honoring God. And if you're seeing him, You're seeing God. And that if you know him, you know God. And if you hate him, you hate God. Who could say things like things like that? And he did things that were things only God could do. He forgave sins and people would marvel at that and say, well, how can he do that? How can he forgive sins? You can forgive what someone does against you, but you can't forgive what someone does against someone else. Unless you're God. (laughs) And so they recognized when Jesus would look at people and say, your sins are forgiven, that he was claiming to be God. He said that he would judge the world. Only God can do that. And he he did miracles that restored life to people, that healed and even brought back the dead. You could do, you could do that. John Stott, who wrote a book that's influenced me greatly, it was written when I was six years old. I didn't read it then, but that's the date when it was written. Uh, a book called Basic Christianity. I would, if you want to give somebody a book for Christmas, it wasn't a believer, even somebody who is, that's a great little book. It's easy to read. I would recommend you memorize all the footnotes. They're all Bible verses. Uh, but it really is, is, is helpful. But Stott puts it, he puts it like this. He says, and one more flash of breathtaking egocentricity. I love that expression. Because this is what's, this is breathtaking egocentricity. What Jesus is saying about himself. So he says, in, in one more flash of breathtaking egocentricity, Jesus predicted, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. And that's what we've been working on, these breathtaking expressions of egocentricity. That Jesus is drawing all people to himself. This is who I am. And so he says, I'm the bread of life. In other words, the manna that came down from heaven, that kept my people, kept the people of God alive for 40 years, that fed them miraculously, that just kept them alive physically. But I'm the true bread from heaven. I am necessary for you to live to really live spiritually, for you to live eternally, for you to have the life of God without me. You're dead. You die. I'm the light of the world. Uh, You you can't see God uh, apart from me. You need me. Uh, There's no light without me. This is on the door. Uh, uh, Since Adam and Eve sinned, the way to God has been closed. How do, you, how do you get through? And he says, well, every doorway, whether it was a high priest entering through the curtain in the Holy of Holies, but, but, but now you see, I'm the door. That, that, that veil is taken down. I'm the door. I'm the way in. You can't get into the presence of God, to dwell in his presence, to be his people, he your God, uh, uh, apart from me. I'm the good shepherd. All all the bad shepherd and the evil shepherds that the prophet Ezekiel spoke about. Those shepherds that allowed the sheep to be scattered and didn't go after them to heal them and and to restore them to God. I'm the good shepherd. God said, I'm going to come. I'm going to shepherd my sheep. And Jesus said, I'm God. I'm the one Ezekiel spoke of. I'm the one, I'm God, who's now come to gather My sheep, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. 
if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. I mean, who can make those kinds of statements? Well, he says, I can watch me. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. And he said, that's only a glimpse of it because there's even a better resurrection than that. He just came back to this life. He'll die again. But, but I have a, a resurrection life where you'll never ultimately die. Oh, you'll die physically, but, but you'll live eternally uh, in a body that's incorruptible, that's imperishable. And then he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Absolutely, positively, no one comes to the Father except unless they come through through me. And so these breathtaking expressions, statements of egocentricity, this is Jesus saying, this is who I am. And you can only imagine then that the religious leaders who wanted to protect their own territory, when Jesus said things like that, came against him. He was a threat to them. It wasn't that they, the religious leaders didn't believe you should not love your neighbor. Jesus would teach love your neighbor as yourself and all of that. Everybody believed that. Everybody believed that you should obey God. Everybody believed that. What caught their attention was here was one who was claiming to be the authority, the one through whom one must come in order to know God. And that displaced them. And they didn't like that. So that's what got their attention. Who Jesus was claiming to be. What got the attention of the evil spirits and the demons. Satan himself. Was who Jesus is. The very son of God. So so that's what it's about. That's what leads us, led us uh, to these today. Um, if, if God will help me. I want to take up just this expression uh, in verse 1 of chapter 15, and then again in verse 5, where Jesus says, I'm the true vine, or I'm the vine. Um, uh, we, as I say, we won't be able to get to everything that this passage um, talks about, even in that context. Uh, my primary uh, purpose today is, what, what did Jesus mean by that? And then, what are the implications then for us? Um, we'll be able, just because of the way the calendar falls, perhaps next week to take up other aspects of this chapter 15 that may have caught your attention as I was reading and how they relate to Jesus as the vine and how they relate to us as the branches but we'll perhaps come next week to that and then Advent after those after next Sunday but this expression uh, I am the vine Jesus says we are to miss the obvious another I am statement Jesus claiming to be to be God um, but this would be very dramatic to them when Jesus references the vine, uh, because that's an Old Testament figure of speech for Israel. Israel was the vine, God's vineyard, if you will. And he was the husbandman that was put in the old language, or he is the one who is the vine dresser here as we, as we have it. So bells and whistles would be going off in their mind. You see, Israel, obviously, was very significant in the whole plan of, of God. You remember at the creation, Adam and Eve were created to, in a sense, be and to bear fruit in such a way that Eden and then throughout the whole world, the whole earth, would be a worshiping community of people. But at the fall, when they sinned, they rebelled against God and ceased to be that and were cast out, you remember. And of course, to get back in, there needed to be a door and Jesus would be that door, but we've done that. But the point of the matter is then a couple of lines developed from Adam and Eve. We had the line of Cain, which did not develop into a community of worshipers. But through the line of Seth, there would become to be a community of worshipers. You remember, Abraham was ultimately chosen by God and he was blessed by God. And he would be blessed with descendants and he would be blessed with land and all of that. But he was blessed for a particular purpose and he was blessed, Genesis 12 says to us, to be a blessing because out of him would all the nations of the world would be blessed. You see, all the peoples of the world would be blessed through him and and he would have a son and then a grandson whose name would be changed to Israel. And Israel, we find, uh, was to be, you see, this um, worshiping community 
of God. In Genesis chapter 28, in verse 3, um, God in speaking to, to uh, Jacob, who would be Israel, Verse 3 says, God Almighty, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a a company of peoples. Now, that little word company in Hebrew is translated in Greek. I don't usually do this to you. Uh, With the word ekklesia, which means church. A company of people, an assembly of people. And and this assembly of people would be... um, the people of God. And we would find then later that that people would come out of Egypt, we know, and they would come out of Egypt and God would call them and bring them to Mount Sinai to make them his people, if you will. And then in Exodus chapter 19, in verse 5, we read this about them. God says to this people, people of Israel, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so we see this company of people, this group of people who come together <clears throat> to be the people of God. And he is to dwell among them and they are to dwell with him. He is to be their God, they are to be his people. That's this nation of Israel and there to be his treasured possession <clears throat> and a kingdom of priests a whole kingdom of priests that is the nation then is to be priests for the whole world if you will and in order to come into the presence of God you had to come into the presence of this people and to come into his people and through this people would come to know God and we see that as God takes them then to the wild through the wilderness and brings them into the land. He gives them a tabernacle where he will dwell. He gives them priests so that they could, to represent them before him. He gives them sacrifices so that their sins can be atoned for. Um, and there you have it, this people. And they were to be a light. Scripture said there'd be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. If you want us to see God, if you will, through God at work, in them. But as I mentioned, one of the figures of speech that was used for this people was that they were God's vineyard. And as God's vineyard, they were to produce this fruit. That is, they were to produce people who knew God, people who walked with him. When God called Abraham, he called him to walk blameless before him, and that by faith. That was the fruit that they were to bear, that there would be disciples within them, that there would be worshipers of God faithful to him. But we know that they were unfaithful. Psalm 80 lays this out for us. It's a psalm uh, that's placed in a particular time of Israel's history when they're being chastised by God, disciplined by him. So we read in verse 8, the psalmist writes, You brought a vine out of Egypt. Get the imagery there. You get the understanding. They came out of Egypt to be a people of God. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep roots and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. So you you get this, this is poetic, you get the image there of Israel coming out of Egypt and this vine and it just was to grow and be just a fruitful place for the people of God. Verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see... Um, have regard for this vine, the stock of your right hand planted, and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. You see, Israel was known as the firstborn of God. This was his son. Verse 16. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Israel is this vine and we see 
that it came under the, the discipline of God, the judgment of God. And we know why. The prophet Isaiah speaks to us of that. If you turn to Isaiah in chapter 5. I could pick a number of passages just like this. This is the most well-known of them. Isaiah chapter 5. And Isaiah begins to speak of the judgment that would come upon um, the people of God. Let me sing, verse 1, for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Bad fruit. I added that. Bad fruit isn't in the Bible. All right. So, so you know. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I also will command the clouds that they rain, uh, they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are, its, are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. Uh, but behold, an outcry. They were a bloodthirsty, violent people. They didn't bear the fruit of God. They were his vineyard. They were to bear good fruit. The good fruit was to be justice and righteousness and mercy and compassion. Uh, their fruit was to be in such a way that you could look at Israel and see God. That, that you would come to know him through them. And that simply didn't happen. And so... Jesus shows up <laughs> and he says, I'm the true vine. Not, not that Israel was a false one, but it was an unfaithful one. I'm the reliable one. I've come to be all that she was to be. A, a light. A priest. The one through whom people would see the glory of God in Come to know him. I would be the faithful vine. I would be the obedient one. I would be the one that Israel had been called to be, but was unfruitful, but wasn't. And so again, bells and whistles should be going off in their heads when they hear Jesus say, I'm the true vine. What are you saying? How can you say that? You're us. You're, you're the people. You're the nation. You're Israel. Is that who what you're saying you're to be? Well, you might remember... And this is always an obscure little piece. It's in Matthew chapter 2. And we read it sometimes at Christmas time. And it's, it's this expression where uh, Matthew says that out of Egypt, I called my son. And they're saying that about Jesus. You remember the story about Jesus. You remember that he was born in Bethlehem and all of that. And, and Herod was after him. And there was this big bloodbath. And all the little children were killed in this horrible, horrible, horrible situation. I mean, we know of terror in our own day. But remember, that isn't anything new. It's been going on. And it was happening then. You can only feel the situation. It says that. The mothers wept. Of course they did. In whatever area that would take when Herod commanded that the little boys, two years old and younger, would be simply killed. You can only imagine what that would look like in a community. And so you remember that the word came to Joseph, go to Egypt. No wonder why all that. Well, at least this. So that he could fulfill this prophecy. He said, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt came Israel. Out of Egypt came Jesus. The true vine, the true Israel. And just, we could put it like this, for many have, that just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus went through the waters of baptism. And just as Israel went through the wilderness, so Jesus went through the wilderness as well. 
And just as they were tempted, he was tempted, right? And he comes then as the true one. And he comes to the law and he obeys it. And he even takes the curse of it upon himself. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. You see, that's who he uh, is. So that he's saying, the only way to see God is through me. The only way to be a part of the people of God is through and in me, you see. I am the true, the true vine. And so we have it. And so uh, the question is, what does this, this mean really for us? Well, it does mean that Jesus is saying that the only way to the Father is through him. The only way to really be in the presence of God, to be part of the people of God, is in fact, we see, through him. And if we want to continue this metaphor, as he does in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, we get our life from him. He says, unless you're connected to me, you'll die. You've got to be connected to me in a vital, vibrant way the Pauline way of saying this which is just to say the way Paul says it is that we must be in Christ joined together with him this expression that I'm the vine you're the branches is this expression that we're joined together with Christ for us to have real spiritual life for us to be the people of God you see we're to be united with with him this is covenantal language And so he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. That little word abide means to dwell in, to live in, to stay in, to make your home here, to remain here. Don't leave here. It means we abide. He in us, us in him. We're joined together, united with him. We are in fact in Christ. Uh, We see this. Expression in Christ throughout um, the New Testament. For instance, in somewhere. In Second Timothy, in chapter 1, uh, we read this about being in Christ. Verse 9, speaking of Jesus, it said, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. You see, this notion of being in him means that we receive his grace. Apart from him, there is no grace. Connected to him, in union with him, as a branch in a vine, we receive grace. There's no other grace apart from, apart from him. In Ephesians in chapter 1, we read a great deal about what it means to be united to him. Joined with him as a branch to a vine. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. That's this sense of being united to him. A branch in a vine. What do we receive as a branch in a vine? He says we receive in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When he says, I'm the true vine and you're the branches, means you're united to me. What that means is you receive grace, just like a branch receives whatever it gets from the vine that gives it life. He says, you receive grace and you receive every spiritual blessing, which means there's no spiritual blessings apart from being a branch That's in the vine. That's what Jesus is saying. It's breathtaking. It's breathtaking that anyone would say that about themselves. And he says, no, this is really true. If you want spiritual blessings from God. And then verse four. Even as he he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. We must be in Christ. That's where this blessing is in him. Then in verse 7, in him that is in Christ, united to him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, there is no forgiveness, there is no redemption, unless we're in Christ, you see. In chapter 2, in verse 6 
of Ephesians. Um, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are you right now? Well, you're here. <laughs> but at the same time, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Why? Because we're in him. Where he is, we are. He's there, we're with him. So we receive grace. We receive our being chosen by him. Uh, we receive every spiritual blessing. We're seated with him in these places. Second Corinthians, in chapter 5, we see two things. One, in verse 17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So we receive this new life. We're new creatures Therefore, the old has passed away, the new has come. Verse 21, we receive righteousness. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every spiritual blessing comes if we're in him as a branch is in the vine. That's what Jesus is saying. Every spiritual blessing was to come from God to Israel. They refused the blessing. They turned away from the blessing. And now he says, in Christ is the place of spiritual blessing. And the only place of spiritual blessing. I'm the vine. He says, you are, in fact, these uh, branches. And so, so we see it. Now notice an implication, well, the question before we move on, how do we get in Christ? How does all this happen? And there's really two answers to that question. It depends on one's perspective. Uh, unconsciously but decisively, the way that we become in Christ is through a sovereign work of God's grace that he puts us there. Um, uh, where is it? First Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 30 lays it like this. Um, Verse 30, and because of him, that is because of the Father, you're in Christ. I mean, that's the, that's the ultimate answer. I mean, he's the one who does that. Consciously, we become aware of that by faith. We believe. And we go, oh yes. And thus we could say that one becomes a person in Christ by a sovereign work of God's grace. And we receive that, we come to know that, we're conscious of that, by faith. How do you know you're in Christ? Because you believe. And so all of these blessings then come, not because of your own personal righteousness, not because you're better than everyone else, but because of the work of God. And you know that because you believe and you receive it by faith. So the implications of, of, of Jesus being the vine is that we are, his people are branches, and we receive our life from the vine. But then notice this. It's essential that we bear fruit. It's essential that we bear fruit. Notice verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So if you're not bearing fruit, you're gone. Uh, and, and, and he actually prunes us so that we bear more fruit. Because fruit's important. Fruit is necessary. No fruit, gone. Fruit, prune. Why? For more fruit. And so we can see this necessity uh, for fruit. Um, Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruits by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we remain in him, we live in him, so that fruit may come. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches over him, abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That is, you can't bear fruit apart from me. So you need to be attached to me in order to bear fruit. Uh, fruit, um, and uh, we can go on. For instance, uh, um, verse sixteen. I didn't read it. Well, I did. Yes, I did read it. Uh, he said, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide." In other words, we're to bear fruit, and this fruit is going to it's going to last. So, fruit bearing is is really necessary, uh, and important uh, to us. 
but you might say, I thought we were saved apart from our works. What's all this emphasis on fruit bearing? (laughs) If we're to to bear fruit and that's necessary for us, if we don't bear fruit, we're cut off. Oh, I I thought we were saved by grace through faith. That's what the scripture says. I mean, if I had read the whole Ephesians passage, verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And, And that's certainly true. We enter in grace through faith. But that grace does a work in us. It doesn't only bring forgiveness to us, but it also brings the presence of the Spirit to us. It also brings this new life to us. And this new life is to express itself in faith, yes, and in doing that which is good. Because if we continue to read this wonderful passage from Ephesians that starts out by, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to bear fruit. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, The wonderful work of God is that he saves us, not by what we've done, but by the work of Christ. And he gives to us the righteousness of Christ that covers us, but also his spirit that works in us so that we may do that which is pleasing to him. Otherwise, we would be saved but miserable. You see, the blessing of God is that he works in us that we may do that which is good. It would be miserable if he simply saved us. We acknowledge our sin. We know that it deserves his wrath. But we know we're forgiven and that's wonderful. But then we're still stuck always sinning with absolutely no power to over that at all. And he said, no, 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 no. You won't complete it in this life. But I want you to bear fruit. I want you to, to grow in this grace and I want you to do that which, is, that which is good. I mean, we see that all through the scripture. We spent a lot of time um, some time ago in, in the little book of Titus, you remember? Well, uh, much of what Paul writes to Titus is just about this. The opening verses, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That is to say, which strikes the same chord, is consistent with, produces godliness. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what we're to do. And he speaks of Jesus who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says, he says he's, he saved us so that we can bear fruit. And part of the fruit, the fruit that we find individually, what we could say is listed for us um, under the same heading in Galatians and, and chapter 5 called the fruit of the Spirit, you see? And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law, you see? And, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says, listen, we, we need to live by the Spirit. That's the wonderful gift of God to produce this fruit. As we all know, as we've studied this passage of the fruit of the Spirit, it's interestingly singular. I'd like it to be fruits of the Spirit so I could just take one or two. So I'll take patience this week and then we'll deal with the others later. But it's fruits, you see. It's, it's all in, this, in the same bite of this fruit, in the same slice of it, you see. It's, it's all there because really it's all love. I mean, you can't be unkind and loving at the same time. You can't have self-control, which is the control of myself so that I don't hurt anyone else without being loving at the same time. You can't be unfaithful and loving at the same time. You can't be harsh and loving at the same time. Um, 
You can't be impatient and loving at the same time. So it's, it's all about love. And so that's what Jesus really emphasizes here in this particular, in this particular passage. He says, if you keep my commandments, verse 10, you'll abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment that you love each other. So that's the fruit that will be born from you. That's what people will see. And Jesus said, if you love one another as I've loved you, people will know that you're my disciples. Well, because I'm loved, because that's how I've loved. And that's my people should be like that, should be a loving, caring people to love one another, the fruit to be born, you see. And then collectively as the church, what we bear collectively, the fruit that we bear collectively is disciples, followers of Jesus. Israel was supposed to, 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 to have the fruit of followers of God and to trust in him. And they failed to do that. Their fruit was bad. If we are a church, individually we should see the fruits of the spirits in us. And collectively we should see the fruit of disciples among us. That that's the fruit, you see, that we are to produce. And now notice... That Jesus says that when we're producing this fruit, the reward of producing this fruit is getting pruned. <laughs> so you can produce more fruit. Now, very often preachers say that pruning is, is always painful, right? I think that's reading a little too much into the text. It might be painful, but we think when we think of a vine being pruned, we think of taking pruning shears and cutting and oh that looks like it really hurts that vine i've never heard a vine say ouch i don't know i just think that takes the whole figure of speech a little too far necessarily it can be painful we know that in fact the scripture says that there are times when it can be painful but it doesn't necessarily have to be painful when we talk about being discipled in such a way that we help each other bear this, grow this fruit, you see, it can come in, in wonderful, loving sort of ways, by example, by beautiful examples that people give in the church to one another of how we bear fruit. Now, sometimes it's painful when I see you, you know, living so wonderfully well and I compare it to my own life and I feel bad. <laughs> well, I get that. But sometimes... When we're loved by others, you see, when we're loved by others, that's a, that's a kind of pruning. That's a kind of, kind of teaching us how to really love. And it's not painful. People have loved me in various ways. That's been a great blessing to me. And I need to see that as part of this pruning to help me bear more fruit. Because I look at what you're doing and how you're loving. And that helps me to, to be more loving myself. And to, I, I say, well, that's what love is. Oh, yes. That was a blessing to me. It wasn't painful. That was a blessing to me. And so now I can, I can love you as well, you see. When people teach me from the scripture, it doesn't have to be painful. <laughs> I can, they can show me things in the scripture. That's a wonderful blessing to me. And I can say, yes, thank you, Lord, for that. That, that prunes me. Why? How do I know it prunes me? Because it enables me to bear more fruit. That I could be more faithful to the Lord than I had been. Now, yes, there are times when pruning in the life of a Christian is painful. In fact, we can see it all over the place. The author of, of Hebrews um, speaks to that particularly as he talks about God disciplining us. And he makes the statement, verse 10, for they disciplined us, that is our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. It's verse 10, Hebrews 12. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness for those who have been pruned by it, or this is obviously trained by it, but that's the point of it. There are times when difficult circumstances... Difficulties in our life, painful times, can be pruning and enable us to bear good fruit. The other night, Karen and I had the opportunity to share uh, about our lives uh, with a, another group of people, a, a small group, and just sharing about our marriage as we begin this little course, little time of talking about marriage with a particular group of people. And so we shared about our married life. And... Um, 
and had to confess that there was a tremendous amount of difficult pruning in years two through nine in our marriage. But, but that pruning, we can see, that took place in those years, which were, how does he put it? Painful rather than pleasant. There you go. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, uh, I know, there you go. Uh, but, but they, uh, those years have borne tremendous fruit and given us out of 44, 37 really good years of marriage. Uh, but they bore fruit. It's painful. For you, it might be an illness. For you, it might be a difficult relationship. For you, it might be a, a time of, of unemployment. For you, it might be... Who knows what that time would be? But there's various times and various things in the course of our life. Painful, but pruning in a good way. But then there's this question, and it's the question I'll end with. I may not even answer it today. All the way, this question. But, but what about... The branches that don't bear fruit. He says he takes them away and, uh, and they eventually get gathered and thrown into the fire. I mean, there's no way really to escape the fact that he's talking about judgment. That these branches that don't bear fruit are essentially dead. And as you know, when you have a plant that has, or a vine that has, Dead branches, you cut them off and throw them away. He says they burned them, and that's an image for, for judgment. And so the question is, does that mean that if you're a branch in the vine, you can die and be judged? That is to say, can you, can you lose, can you lose the salvation, if you will, that were promised? Well, the short answer to that question is no. <laughs> the long answer to that question we don't have time for, but so I'll give you the short answer to the long, so you don't worry all week. Uh, as you read through the Gospel of John, I urge you to do that. You'll find no one uh, more convinced that we as believers uh, are, are secure in Jesus. For instance, in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says unequivocally, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Uh, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's no exceptions in Jesus' language there. He just simply says that's, that's the case. So, so that's, that's it. And then in John chapter 10, we read something quite similar in verse uh, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and none of them will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so when we talk about this, remember in chapter 15, it's just a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. Everything doesn't have precise meaning. It's just sort of, how else would you say it? He wants to say this, that there are, there, there, there are those who don't believe. And there are those who do. And those who do are in the vine and abide in the vine and remain in the vine and produce fruit. Those who don't believe, though, he says, in me, but those who don't produce fruit, they're, they're really dead. They give no evidence, really, of having been born again. No evidence, really, of believing, really believing. And in the same way, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower, he speaks of, of seed falling on, on ground that, that looks like it's going to to bear fruit, but it doesn't. For instance, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, he says, As for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And he has no root in himself, but it endures for a while. When tribulation and persecutions arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but, care, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so we see, and then he goes on to say, as for, the, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands. Indeed, he bears fruit and yields one, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and another 30. What he's saying, there can be some who are part of the church. I think they believe. But they bear no fruit. They give no evidence that they're really followers of Christ. We don't see it. 
We don't see this love that Jesus said would mark out his people. We don't see it. He says, so? Branches that don't bear fruit are not his. Branches that don't bear fruit have not been born again. Branches that don't bear fruit will be cast off. Those who bear fruit prove, as he puts it, to be his disciples. They don't earn it by their fruit. They prove it by their fruit. In fact, as Jesus put it in verse 3, already you're clean. There's a play on words here between pruning and cleaning. Same expression. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So he says, you've been cleansed. You've been pruned in the most ultimate sense. And now you can bear fruit. And you'll be continually pruned, not in the same dramatic way as when you move from death to life, but you'll continue to be pruned. Remember when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples? Peter said, no, don't wash me. You can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if, you, if I don't wash your feet, you're going to have no part with me. And so Peter said, well, wash my whole body. And Jesus said, no, you're already clean. You just need to wash your feet. You're already clean. But in the course of our lives as believers in Jesus, we need to be pruned. We need to be pruned by the word. We need to be pruned through prayer. We need to be pruned through the examples of others. We need to be pruned through hardships. And as we're pruned, all of that is for the purpose of bearing fruit. Jesus said, I'm the vine. If you're attached to me, you're attached to God. If you're attached to me in this vital way, you have life. If you're attached to me, you have grace. If you're attached to me, you've been chosen. If you're attached to me, you've been redeemed. If you're attached to me, you've been forgiven. If you're attached to me, you have an unstoppable, never-ending, unquenchable love from God. And that will bear fruit. And you'll be pruned. The last word is this, and we mustn't miss it. He says, now I've told you these things for a purpose. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you. And your joy may be complete. The end result of his pruning isn't just fruit. It's joy. We'll have to unpack that next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that we would know this. Please, I pray, Heavenly Father.